Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Treating You, presented to you by Bart's Health. This is the podcast that gives a voice to our 18,000 staff, shines a light on their day-to-day working lives and show you the public some of their amazing stories and experiences. In this podcast we chat to the people who keep the trust going and the most inspirational stories from our patients. We discuss how they came to be at Bart's Health, their healthcare journey and how they treat you. In this episode, we explore the impact of air pollution to our health and specifically the effects this has on people living in East London. Every year, air pollution causes up to 36,000 deaths in the UK. The World Health Organization and the UK government both recognise that air pollution is the largest environmental health risk we face today. In East London, every year, nearly 8% of deaths in people aged 30 and over are caused by air pollution. That's nearly 1% higher than the London average and 2% higher than the national average. Long-term exposure to air pollution can cause chronic illnesses such as lung disease, heart disease, dementia and strokes, while short-term exposure can impact lung function and aggravate asthma. My guests for this episode are Dr Anna Moore, East London resident Kevin White and local councillor Clyde Lokes. Dr Moore is a respiratory doctor currently working at a clinic dedicated to breathlessness here at Bart's Health. Anna also sits as Vice Chair of Green at Bart's Health, a staff network set up to support and challenge Bart's Health in reducing its carbon emissions and reaching its sustainability goals. Kevin has spent most of his life living in Newham and has recently moved to the borough of Greenwich where he's been living for the last two years. Kevin's family have seen the effects of air pollution firsthand, with his youngest daughter being diagnosed with asthma at the age of eight. Living close to a major road linking central London to East London, Kevin moved to Greenwich for hopes of a greener environment. Finally, Clyde Lokes is Walden Forest Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Environment. Clyde has been Councillor for the Leytonstone Ward in Walton Forest for the past 23 years. As Walton Forest Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Environment, Clyde leads on all environmental, climate and transport policies. Clyde provided the political leadership and delivery of the multi-award winning Mini Holland scheme in Waltham Forest, which he talks about on this episode. The Mini Holland is a scheme funded by the government to transform London boroughs into cycling hubs equipped with high-spec Dutch-style cycling infrastructure. The delivery of the scheme has improved the borough's active travel and boosted the number of residents walking and cycling. This episode will be going live on National Clean Air Day, so after listening to this pod, we hope your listeners can go away with a better understanding of air pollution, its effects to our bodies, and maybe create small lifestyle changes in your own life that can make huge differences to our planet and your health. So this is how my discussion with Anna, Kevin and Clyde went. Anna, Kevin, Clyde, welcome to Treating You. Thanks for talking to me today. Thanks for coming to our shiny and bright Canary Wharf offices. How are you all? Great. Great, thank you. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, all right. Brilliant. Kevin, I want to come to you first. We're talking about Clean Air Day. We're talking about the subject of air pollution. So many of our listeners will be living in London. Many of our staff live in London. Some don't, but obviously a lot of them do. And they might be unaware about the effects of air pollution to their own health. So can you tell me a bit about growing up in London, specifically East London? I'm an East London resident myself. I was born and bred here. And the impact of air pollution on you and your family? Uh, I was born in Plasto, East London, and spent my primary school years in the 70s living in the area. I also lived in Canning Town, and now I've moved over to South East London, Tudor's Hill. When I was younger, there wasn't much talk about the problems that could be caused by pollution. Mm -hmm. It was there, we knew it was there, but we didn't really see it as an enormous problem. 
to the extent that as a kid, I used to enjoy the smell and the mm. fumes, and we all did. And on a on a really but cold, the petrol as well when you were a kid, it always yeah. makes you feel it, nice. It was it? lovely. Yeah. It, well, it felt lovely, <laughs> but it wasn't lovely. And yeah, on a cold day, the fumes would be there, and we'd all sort of huddle around in the fumes and stuff. And I have no doubt it was attacking our health at a very young, early stage. I was told later, uh, at some point when I went to the doctors for a sort of a bit of an MOT, that they could detect in my childhood that I had had. Sort of overexposure TB. to it. Yeah, overexposure to it, which may or may not have led to TB. Oh, wow. Uh, we, okay. you know, our housing conditions were cramped back then, and it's sort of a shame to see that housing conditions in East London mm. in many ways haven't moved on. So tell me about TB then. Is it common? Was it uncommon? What was this kind of situation back then and now? To be honest, I was a kid, so I didn't really pay it any mind. We didn't talk about it, and I would say that at the time it was largely undiscussed it was a thing that people heard of and, and it almost kids would make jokes of it you've got tb if you were coughing it was taboo it was stigma stigma and there wasn't a great focus and awareness of personal health and how to improve it or maintain it at the time and so it wasn't on the agenda wasn't discussed and i want to come to you just quickly then so can you tell me about the statistics behind tb then is it rare nowadays is it not rare it's certainly not gone away, and in all the East London hospitals, we have a thriving TB service. It's very busy. And how directly is it linked to air pollution? Then I, I actually, I'm sorry, I don't know. I was just immediately oh, okay. googling that because we'll let listeners research that one. Then <laughs> we could let listeners research, but actually, I think it's something indicative of a bit of a problem because I've done quite a lot of TB work, working mm. as a respiratory registrar at the Royal London, and it doesn't come up as in it's not in our kind of routine mm. clinical assessment of people and I, and I wonder if that reflects a gap in our training about air pollution so certainly with other kind of non-communicable diseases it doesn't appear to feature particularly highly mm. we do quite a lot of work on kind of trying to raise the profile of air pollution as a respiratory problem generally and then with you Kevin I understand that your daughter has asthma so was that ever impacted by the air pollution has it been exacerbated by air pollution what can you tell me here well, my daughter is 14 years old now, and when she was around about eight years old, she was having breathing difficulties, and pretty much we'd put my daughter, who was uh, eight at the time, my son who was six, who put him to bed, and primarily the older one, uh, my daughter, would cough herself to sleep. So we had many nights where it was just continuous coughing, and my wife and I were trying to do all sorts of things and trying all sorts of remedies to get rid of the cough. It got to the point where... It wasn't stopping. We took her to the doctor, and the doctor prescribed an inhaler, which gave her the relief mm. that she needed so she could get off to sleep and give her that relief in the daytime. We were about one road back from the A13, which a highly congested road. We had, uh, as an indication of how bad it was, we had a kind of astroturf, no mm -hmm. mow type thing put in the back garden. And over time, quite a short time, we noticed that when the kids came in, you looked at the bottom of their feet, they were just absolutely blackened with particles, soot-type particles. And that, no doubt, was coming in from the A13. And I suppose I'm not a doctor, but I could see a link mm. between that pollution... It was tangible. Yeah, and the cough. That was a problem. Mm. We moved, not necessarily because of that at the time, we moved to the other side of the A13 which is an enormous trek <laughs> <laughs> as East London as we travel far. And on that side, we noticed the symptoms started to die off. Did that make you feel better? It did make me feel better. We, could, we actually were able to take her off of the inhaler. Amazing. And one of the key reasons, I believe, that that happened was when we were on the north side 
of the uh, A13, there's a southwesterly wind that blows, and it was taking all of the pollution to our house. Mm. When we moved on the other side, we were behind the wind. So it doesn't make the air clean because the wind does change direction from time to time, and you could tell by the sound. You could hear the traffic or not hear it, and that would tell you what way the wind was blowing. But because we were on the south side, the symptoms reduced because, I would say, that the pollution was less. Okay, and in, re- in response to that, what can you tell me about the work that you've done? So I work in a breathlessness clinic. We see adult respiratory patients of lots of different respiratory conditions, including asthma uh, and COPD. And that story that Kevin's just shared certainly chimes with my experience that, that my patients share with me. What's kind of, I guess, a bit concerning is that I have to ask. So often patients don't come to me and say, look, I live in a really busy, polluted area, and I think that's why my chest is bad. They don't mm. say that. They say, my chest is bad. Yeah. <laughs> and they have very, very frequent exacerbations of their asthma, of their COPD. They have really commonly very bad sinus problems, which irritates all the airways. And they have real problems with breathlessness, really intractable breathlessness as a result of these kind of chronic long-term conditions, which obviously then feeds into the development of further conditions. So if, you, if you're breathless, then you're less likely to move. You might put on weight and you can suffer with other non-communicable diseases, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of which kind of turn into this vicious cycle of limited mm. then physical activity and then social impacts. We're kind of seeing this in the clinic. We see this kind of tip of an iceberg, which is the respiratory conditions, but actually it's it's related to so much else that, mm. that is going on and, and particularly kind of the social determinants of health. But just when Kevin was talking, I was thinking the number of patients I've seen who I'll say will get these stories of very, very frequent exacerbations, bad chest infections, lots of phlegm, lots of mucus coming up. And I'll say, and, and where do you live? And they'll say, oh, oh, quite close to the A, you know, the A13. <laughs> or they'll say, actually really close to the Blackhall Tunnel. Or they'll say, I live in Bethnal Green between that busy road and the railway. You can sort of tick it off as you yeah. keep, yeah. And, yeah. and I've got a patient who was telling me about, very similar to Kevin's story about being on the, because I asked specifically about air pollution. And he said, yeah, well, I can't really leave anything out on my balcony because it just gets black within within hours I can't leave anything outside wow like they can't hang the washing out so this is a problem that is experienced by basically (laughs) the vast majority of people that that we see in clinic and my kind of concern as a clinician and as an educator is that it's not something that we routinely ask about we don't say and and where do you live we don't ask that we say okay so bad uh, I don't know rhinitis do you have hay fever we ask about pollen but we don't ask about the pollutants that are coming out the back ends of cars and our go-to response is to treat it with steroids so I will prescribe something that will help to reduce inflammation be it caused by pollen or by air pollution but it doesn't solve the problem. It just mm. makes it feel a bit better. You've spoken there about so many knock-on effects, long-term mm. health risks, and the general public would obviously know a lot about the harms of smoking. They'll know about mm. the harms mm. of alcohol and, and how to moderate things or how not to moderate things and the excessiveness of both of those. Why do you think the effects of air pollution are not as well known amongst the general public? Well, I think there's a we're in a kind of vicious cycle, really, because we can't, as individuals, really do very much about it. So... I think certainly speaking to kind of clinician colleagues, when the subject of air pollution comes up, the kind of response is, well, what can I do? What can I do as a doctor to help this person with the fact that they live on the A13? There's nothing I can do. And so I think as doctors, we really want to be able to help. We really want to be able to do something, take action. And so we kind of shy away from things that we can't make a difference with. Because it's not in your locus of control. Because it's not in our locus of control. And I think there's a feeling of helplessness and we want to be able to help and and we can't with this kind of thing. So we don't go there. And I think that's a real issue. Certainly, I'm and I kind of have this with my patients. I'll say, 
where do you live? And then they'll say, okay, so here's some advice I can give you about air pollution. I signpost everybody to the um, Clean Air Hub, which is a fantastic website on air pollution, which is um, run by Global Action Plan, charity working on air pollution. What it contains is advice about stepping back from the curb, using quieter routes, maybe using back streets, trying to avoid using the car which is a big one actually for me one of the most powerful things I can say is actually if you do use the car a lot it's much more likely that you're exposed to air pollution sitting in a a queue a standing queue of traffic because you're inside a closed box than you would be just even standing outside the car a couple of meters away so if you're traveling around your exposure to air pollution is much less if you're walking or cycling by back roads often cycling is a bit more complicated because you have a higher tidal volume when you're cycling so you actually breathe in more of the pollutants so again using back roads is very sensible but in terms of our kind of discourse our conversation about air pollution that is a very powerful problem in that we can't do anything about it as individuals and we have a very individualistic approach Mm. to our health based on medicine prescribing (laughs) largely (laughs) (laughs) and then council like before i come to you just quickly kevin what outside of this podcast obviously what have you done to raise awareness about this in your own community either when you were living in east london or when you were living in south east london well when i was living in sort of east london canning town i helped as much as possible and got involved in sort of housing campaigns mm. to see if we could try to get people better housing so that would cover the damage that is done to people's lungs because we found a lot of properties in in the area of canning town had very poor ventilation and in some cases no ventilation whatsoever windows had sealed shut and they'd sealed shut for years so in the summer it was boiling hot and the condensation and the mold it was enormous so that was you know what I did sort of hands-on in Canning Town. Clyde I want to come to you now so you've been working with the people of East London for quite a few years what have you seen when it comes to air pollution experienced by your constituents? What groups are more vulnerable or what groups have perhaps raised this as an issue of, to you of, of importance? So we've primarily been working on a response to air quality through trying to encourage more people to go about their day-to-day lives by active travel modes, so walking and cycling. And that's why Wolf and Forest is probably on this show today while you invited us along. We recognised way back that our air quality was massively impacted by the amount of car trips around our borough, particularly short-based car journeys around our borough, as well as the fact that Wolf and Forest has a number of arterial roads going through it, the A406, the A12, and then Leightonstone High Road, Leighton High Road, you know, Forest Road. So it's a really, really big traffic-based infrastructure. We started a process of challenging that through the Mini Holland funding scheme, which was a, a London Mayor funded scheme to put in infrastructure to make it safer. What uh, is that for listeners who don't know what Mini Holland is? I know we, so we it was a, it was a, was a lot of bikes and stuff but what t- was it? It was a listeners? TFL funding scheme to encourage more people to walk and cycle more of their day-to-day journeys and it was particularly targeted in outer London where car ownership in London is traditionally higher than it is in inner London and our approach to that was to create kind of neighbourhoods where through traffic rat running traffic couldn't occur so all of a sudden you were taking out thousands upon thousands of car movements every day from local residential areas which meant that more people were more willing to walk Mm -hmm. for those short journeys 
more willing to cycle for those short journeys, more willing to micro-scooter for those short journeys, perhaps to the local shops, perhaps to and from school, perhaps to the leisure centre, or even their place of work, or even to the bus stop, to the tube station or the train station for their onward commute rather than driving those particular journeys. Have you seen the impact of that as a tangible measure yet or is, is it still too early to say? So we undertook some research with King's College about five, six years ago now and they were showing that uh, the interventions that we made by taking out rat running through traffic uh, from large parts of our residential neighbourhoods was increasing the life expectancy of babies born from that period onwards as well as the fact that annually we see more annual surveys by DFT are showing more Wolfen Forest residents taking active travel as a choice on a daily and weekly basis than well before we put in the infrastructure mm. that kind of prioritised and gave them the support to make these decisions, to make mm. it safer for them to do so. And if you walk around some of our neighbourhoods now where we've put these interventions in place, where we've taken out that rat running through traffic, you will see people walking down the road. You will see far more people cycling and walking, you know, and that's a real, real positive mm. for our neighbours. And that's improved our air quality. So we've seen some improvements, particularly in our NOx emissions in the borough as a consequence of those interventions. You know, we've still got some way to go on some of the other more monitored now pollutants like particulate matter pm 2.5 and pm 10 but you know we're doing our best with those as well Mm. and just quickly for you anna does that make your job easier or better if we stopped short unnecessary car journeys i think Clyde, you'll be able to correct me. I think it's a third of journeys in London are less than two kilometres. Is that right? Third of car journeys driven in London less than two kilometres, which can be walked in 20 minutes or cycled in 15, I think. 10, I think it's 10, yeah. Cycled in 10? No, cycled in 10, yeah, walked in 20, yeah. Right. So this is not big time out of people's days, but the benefit of physical activity, just moving and booking it into your day, just getting it into your daily routine is really powerful in terms of health benefits long term. So there's a statistic for an act, I think a cycling commute if people increase their or move from a carb dependent commute to a physical activity commute you reduce the risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease independently by 45 percent like it's absolutely enormous for me I'd run out of people to see in clinic if we if we could maybe re- reduce some of this physical inactivity it's not everybody because actually the people who we've got to remember the people who are most deprived in our communities don't have cars because they can't afford to have them so for them it's if we take out cars from our our journeys we are also benefiting other people Mm. um, by reducing the air pollution and then what about residents who say can't use public transport for whatever reason are there any alternatives that you could give them to make their lives more sustainable are you suggesting can't use a bus as well or or you know maybe their transport links in their town or place or if it's just outside london but they need to they need so, to use a car or what, so you know, what other options have they got? We certainly recognise that not everyone is going to be able to kind of walk and cycle a lot of their day-to-day journeys. So we're encouraging more people to kind of car share rather than personally own a car because that then also means that they're only then using the car when it's really, really essential. We're obviously encouraging people to move to electric vehicles, although they aren't the solution because you still get emissions from the tyres and brakes, which is still a real challenge to our health and well-being, but they are better than what we currently have. And then, of course, what you are seeing is this boom in adaptations of bicycles that are actually unlocking the potential and giving people 
the opportunity to utilize a bike, whether it's a trike, whether it's an electric cycle now, so that we are seeing older people and people perhaps with more challenging mobility needs, uh, challenged mobility needs, actually utilizing some of these new and emerging kind of technical innovations associated with a traditional bicycle. And it's very liberating and it's just opening up the joy of cycling to far, far more people all the time. Can I just come in there? Because we're running a project at the moment for clean, in the run up to Clean Air Day. So it's Sustainability Month at the trust isn't it and green at bites health which um, one of the organizers of has run a project where we've offered free bike hire of electric brompton bicycles to members of staff and they've taken them away for two weeks and we deliberately asked a kind of range of different staff if they would like to be involved in this and we advertised it to their women's network and their bme network first so that we got kind of a diverse group of people who would kind of take part in this and we've got an amazing group of 10 people who've switched their car commutes to work to active travel. So we've got somebody who was driving because she had problems with her joints and, and chronic pain, and she has switched to riding her e bompton to work. I think we've got to kind of remember that it's not just a standard bike that you see, you know, like the scary bike careers like cycling. It's not, there are bikes for everybody, pretty much. I mean, again, it's not everybody, but there's a massive range of options. And the research, as I understand it, with e-bikes is that it, massively helps with people to start cycling and also massively increases the range that people can cycle so where you would have a normal pedal bike is a kind of like a circle like that and then you you go quite a few miles outside that kind of radius which will allow people to cycle and and so really you can switch your commute i've tried it it's great like i didn't want to give my e-bike back (laughs) could i just add to that yeah when i was in canning town it's very flat east london or the, the area where i live so i used to ride a lot when I moved to uh, Shooter's Hill, obviously. It's a hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> says what it does on the tin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's an unbelievably hilly area, all of that area. Mm. And so riding a bike, the appeal mm. drops off. Mm-hmm. In particular, yeah. if you live at the top of a hill, because yeah. when you get going, it's great. <laughs> but then when you've got to come back you think home, of the, you think of the journey you back. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so with the e-bike, so I bought an electric bike, and that helps mm. me with the hill ride on the way back, so... Mm. You don't notice it. It's, mm. it's amazing. And I just wanted to come back as well to something that Clyde was talking about. The low-traffic neighbourhoods are not car-free neighbourhoods. Mm. They are low-traffic. So, so what's it, the difference? I was kind to answer that. <laughs> well, look, you can still access your home where you want to go by car if you want to, if you need to. It allows that. But what it does is stops people that are perhaps coming off the A406 in Wolfram Forest cutting through residential areas bypassing the traffic lights and the interventions on main roads that manage through traffic it prevents that rat running from happening so all of a sudden the people who live in those residential areas feel more comfortable in walking and cycling and micro scooting around their neighborhood doing those short based journeys on a day-to-day basis Mm. a car free residential area you just wouldn't be able to drive into be completely out of Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah can i add something else to this which is that we talk about air pollution as the kind of risk associated with cars and we also kind of extend that to physical inactivity but there are quite a few other health risks associated with heavy traffic in areas so there's emerging evidence of the impact of noise on children's learning which has just recently been published and it's really really problematic so if you ha- if your your school is next to a busy road your results are much lower i think you'll maybe know more about this kevin from the Keir Hardy school is that right yeah it's it's sort of a lesser but still significant version of aircraft yeah and you know schools in areas where you know near Heathrow 
you know, they experience a, a real struggle. With so there's a drop off. Keeping kids right. up to speed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think a month, a year, or something of that yeah. nature. Oh wow. And it's okay. Associated with noise. So that's one thing. And then another thing is that cars just divide communities. So when Clyde was talking about rat running coming through people's neighbourhoods, so I live on what is essentially a rat run, and I didn't actually meet my neighbour. I didn't see my neighbour who's directly opposite my house for six years after I moved in. I'd never met him, and that's because. Our road is like an abyss that you can't cross. It's, it, you can't cross it. And there was a really interesting study done in the 60s by a guy called Donald Appleyard, which was then repeated in, I think, the mid-2000s in Bristol, which showed that physically the community connections in roads of low, middle and high traffic areas are massively impacted. So he actually drew the connections between houses on a road and uh, you could see as the traffic went higher, these connections drop off, not just across, but along the road as well. Mm. And there was a qualitative component of this, which he asked people to describe what their neighbourhood was like. And people said, it's unfriendly, it's a cold neighbourhood, I don't really know, nobody helps each other out. And then in the lower car, the the lower traffic neighbourhoods, it's really great community, we all get together, we know each other. And so that is at its heart a health issue mm. because the number of people I see in clinic who are just lonely, isolated, mm. they don't mm. have any support. And we're doing that to people with cars. Mm. So it's, it's a real health issue. So it's really, really interesting. So anecdotally, that's been one of the things that consistently comes out of six months, 12 months after we've introduced a low traffic neighbourhood in Wolfram Forest as being one of the key benefits. People are able to talk to their neighbours, yeah. meet their neighbours. When they're walking to school, they're able to talk to the, the parents of, of their, their school child's mm. friends because they feel safe for letting their children go on a few yards in front rather than grasping their their hands for dear life or driving as they previously were and not meeting anyone we've created in our what we call modal filters the places that stop the rat running traffic coming through but pedestrians and cyclists and other people can still get through in those spaces we've created spaces for people to meet and talk and say oh do you fancy a coffee now we've dropped the kids off at school you know and of course you can hear the birds sing And again and again and again, that's one of the key things that people say. I can hear the birds sing for the first time in years and years. So that kind of sense of community cohesion, that sense of a neighbourhood well-being uplift that you get from taking out those thousands upon thousands of vehicle movements every day is hugely beneficial and hugely recognised. Anna, I want to ask you a final question before I ask my final, final question and open it up a little bit. So the latest figures from the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities show that almost eight in every 100 deaths of people aged 30 or over in Newham specifically, which is one of our key boroughs in 2020, were linked to long-term exposure to air pollution. So if there are any listeners who are not our Bart's Health staff and might be feeling under the weather or might be thinking they might they might be feeling a bit ill, well, they, they would never think it's linked to air pollution but it actually is what advice would you give them as a clinician to reduce their exposure yeah i mean yeah i mean or just or where to go if they if they recognized it well so so this website the clean air hub has a wealth of information on on air pollution and it's it's a really really great place to go there's also quite a few other places you can get information so there's um, a website called address pollution where you can put in your postcode and have a look unfortunately that showed recently that 97 percent of households in the uk are living in areas that are above the who limits for air pollution so we've got a problem right so there's two two places you can go 
I would really, I'd ask people to ask their clinicians. I'd say, please, please speak to your doctor about this. And, and while I can't promise that your doctor will be able to address this fully with you f- for the reasons that we've already discussed, I think that might help to start the conversation or promote the conversation a little bit more about air pollution because it is, as you've pointed out, eight in a th- 100 deaths is an absolutely giant health risk. Uh, the other way around, I learned one in 16 recently. This is almost 10%, which yeah, is a lot. exactly, exactly. And as you point out, in Newham, one of the most deprived boroughs in the country, the most deprived borough in the country, mm. I think, it's higher. It goes with deprivation. So we've, we've got a health justice issue on our hands as well. It's all linked. It's kind of inextricable from those other social determinants that Kevin was talking about with the, ha- with the problems with housing. So yeah, I've, right, rambling slightly, but do ask your clinician, have a look at those websites. And then in terms of reducing your own exposure really making sure you're using those back streets you're avoiding car travel where you can indoor air pollution is a big issue and there's lots of guidance on that about how to avoid things please cough if you need to mate (laughs) (laughs) don't hold it in don't worry yeah Yeah, no put that on there (laughs) (laughs) no but i'm going to address this okay shall i leave it in let's leave it in (laughs) go on explain that cough thing kevin Uh, i wish i could (laughs) i need need a doctor to explain that it's interesting listening to anna it is causing me to sort of look at myself and perhaps face up to things that i haven't looked at and addressed i have chronic cough and i've had chronic cough for years every year i pretty much get struck down with a really bad chest infection but you know, I sort of look at my children's health and I act on behalf of my children because they can't do that for themselves. But I let my own thing mm. go and I ignore it and hope that you know, each it year just works it will get out, better. Yeah. yeah, some things do, some things don't. This one won't. I've been to my doctor twice and had sort of an examination of the throat. I did get damaged to the throat many years ago. And on both occasions, they've referred me on. I produce a lot of phlegm. The symptoms that Anna was talking about earlier, I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, yeah, that's me. And really, I do need to act on it. And I would imagine that many of those deaths are preventable if people sought help mm. and support and treatment as early as possible. Mm. I've probably gone past that point, but yeah, this is... Well, no, you, <laughs> not, no not, not to that <laughs> point. No, I'm a long time living. But I need to get something yeah. sorted. Do you think it's yeah. as, as equally about recognising yourself and seeking help if you do need it, but also maybe educating others to recognise the signs that someone is struggling and telling yes. them where they might not even recognise it themselves? Yeah, I've got a remedy for the cough which is only momentary and my wife calls it shut up Kevin <laughs> and it's, it's a sort of herbal mix of like chilli and whatever and it, it kills it off for a bit but my wife like when I start coughing it's it's I've gone deaf and numb to it almost mm. but to her she hears it and she will tell me reach for the shut up Kevin mm. or she may just say shut up Kevin, <laughs> and I know what she means but isn't it interesting, you know, I'm very similar to you, Kevin, you know, I will tell others that they need to go to the doctor, yeah. or, you know, I know when my daughter isn't feeling very well, I know, you know, that I need to do something, yeah. yet when it comes to myself, it's yeah. a real, real issue, and I think there's loads of studies, isn't there, about particularly men, yeah, uh, men, are not great men <laughs> accessing health isn't particularly great when they need it, but actually a lot of this isn't medical in its kind of solution, mm-hmm. it's system and it's behaviour based, you know, and School Street's one of the big kind of initiatives over the past couple of years, particularly in London, you know, 20% of the traffic on the AMP, Peak and Walton Forest was 
primary school school run traffic mm. in, in in that morning area yet you know you never in Wolf Vice never more than probably a 10 minute walk from your local primary school well I mean yeah. it's absolutely yeah. obscene what we were seeing but school streets have made a huge difference yeah. especially you know seeing the amount of children that are now walking and of course when you're in a car driving your child to the primary school, not only are you taking out of their day much needed valuable exercise that kind of not only helps for a healthy body but a healthy mind that's prepared to be stimulated by you know, the education that they're about to have for the day, you're allowing them to, the fumes to be pumped into that car and yeah. sit in that metal box sucking up the fumes. It's a really unhealthy place to be. And yet we subject our children and have been subjecting our children to that for decades, thinking that was a right thing to do. Yet the right thing to do is to allow them to put on their wellies and jump in a puddle when it's a rainy day on the walk to school because it's the fun thing to do. It stimulates them. It makes them healthy and you are actually preventing them from long-term health damage to their bodies. Because, mm. of course, and I wanted to add that we talked earlier about the respiratory risks of air pollution, but as we'll hear from Abby, it's every single organ in the body. It's not as isolated by any means to the respiratory system. So we know that air pollution makes diabetes worse. It's mm. implicated in diabetes is certainly implicated in cardiovascular disease in fact my understanding is that the first thing that makes a difference with air pollution projects is cardiovascular deaths it's more than respiratory dementia infertility uh, air pollution particles have been found in the placentas of pregnant women it's literally throughout every single organ in the body and so when we're talking about that kind of vicious situation cycle that we get ourselves into with physical inactivity caused by cars which are polluting our world our air that we breathe we don't have a choice about the air that we breathe we can change our diets but we can't change the air that we breathe we're not only establishing kind of unhealthy habits as adults but we're also adding air pollution which absolutely just makes everything worse it just kind of gets into this kind of horrible soup of illness Mm. and then as a final question, what more can we do? Any final thoughts, Kevin? I'll start with you. Sort of speaking from, saying, you know, from what I said earlier, if you need help, seek help as quickly as possible. And as a you know, caring for everybody else, but not necessarily caring for yourself, is not great because if you're not there, then you can't continue that care. Exactly. I think uh, government, local councils need to push towards greener modes of transport. And there's other things I could say, but I'd better leave a few for you guys. (laughs) Anna? Take action with your voice. So, yeah, as you pointed out, speak to others about this. Really raise this as a profile. But there are other people who may have more influence than just the average person on the street. If you don't have a school street in your area, ask for a school street in your area if you're a parent. Ask for cycling infrastructure. Ask for low-traffic neighbourhoods. There are loads of really nice tools. So Mums for Lungs have a really nice campaigning tool. And again, the, the Clean Air website has, has templates for writing to your MP and your head teacher of your local school. Talk about it. Clyde? I think there's so many examples of things that can now address some of the challenges that we've built up over the past 40, 50 years with the push for mass car, private car ownership. There are lots of solutions. They've been proven to work and make a difference. So do that little bit of research. You know, follow some of the points that Kevin and Anna have alluded to, but also come and see 
what it looks like, what it feels like to be in a school street. Because they are, you know, I think there's about 500 in London now operating on a daily basis. Come and see a low-traffic neighbourhood in Wolfham Forest or in Newham or some of the other boroughs that are, have taken them forward. You know, look and feel the difference is massive and it's those kind of behavioral changes those system changes that'll be some of the key interventions that'll help improve our health and well-being and help address the poor air quality that we've subjected ourselves to for many many years so that we don't then replicate that on future generations but come and see and feel it and you'll notice the difference straight away and one way that you can do that is to organise a play street in your local area, which is a really, really lovely thing to do. Councils are generally very supportive of that. And we did one close to us. Um, and as soon as those wheelie bins were rolled out to the end of each road, each, each end of the road, it turned into a place. So yeah. it's a rat run. Our road is a rat run. It's speeding drivers coming through all the time. And the children, as soon as the cars weren't there, children were out they were playing they were on their scooters they were running around people came out of their houses they started talking to each other we actually replicated that study from donald Appleyard. Uh, we wrote the houses out on the street and we asked people to write a line between their house and someone they already knew in one color and then at the end of the day we asked them to add in any in another color new people they'd met and the num the lines doubled so we doubled the number of community connections and it looked, it visually looked like a place. So this is one amazing way of kind of visioning what it looks like without, without cars. It's beautiful. But it's amazing, isn't it? You know, two weeks ago, we had hundreds of street yes. parties, you know, to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee. Yeah. That could be done in your neighbourhood yeah. on a weekly, monthly yeah. basis through a play street yeah. or just a community neighbourhood party. And, really and it makes organize. a difference. It really does start to make a difference because yeah. then you think, well, what if this was like this? daily weekly monthly you know actually we're almost there in kind of changing people's minds to say that actually streets and neighborhoods are for people first and foremost and if you make it better for people first and foremost then you're going to improve their health and well-being and i include mental health in that also 100%. and on that note anna kevin clyde thank you so much for coming on treating you thank you thank, thank you, you. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to this episode of treating you if you enjoyed it Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on, share it on social media and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're a journalist and would like to get in touch with about any of the issues we've discussed, please contact us at bartshealth.pressoffice at nhs.net or you can visit bartshealth.nhs.uk slash pressoffice for more information. Stay safe, look after yourselves and we'll be back soon to treat you with another episode.